Hello, and welcome to Between Two Curators, the podcast where two friends and, well, curators discuss art, life, and who or what inspires them. I'm Cliff. And I'm Jen. And in this episode, we speak to Ben Alenach, Professor of Theoretical Particle Physics at the University of Cambridge, visiting scientist at CERN, as well as artist and pantomime star. <laughs> Welcome, Ben. <laughs> Thank you very much, Hello. Jen. Cheers. Hi. Hi, Cliff. <laughs> um, so we're, it's such a pleasure to have you here with us. And um, we thought we would kick off with something quite basic, yet kind of about everything, theoretical particle physics. Spark notes, excuse the pun, but what does it involve? Um, so in my everyday day job, I uh, go looking for new particles and new forces. Um, and I analyze data that's coming out of CERN, for instance, mm -hmm. the experiments at CERN. Um, and I try and work out uh, what they mean, you know, w whether they're there for, for, a, for a start, whether there's any, any evidence for them and what they mean. And, you know, how, how does that uh, relate to us in our lives? That's what that's what I want to know. So it's really just it's it's just uh, it's blue skies research. We want to find out about uh, you know the universe in which we live. Really, it's curiosity driven fundamental research. All right, Ben, we're going to take you straight straight down the middle there, right into the depths of it. What is the universe made of? What do we think it's made of at present? Because the last time uh, last time I think I, I checked in. We were we were still looking for some uh, few constituent components in order to resolve either a, a theory about the universe being made of strings or even membranes. What was the current thinking of, of what everything's made of? So the real answer actually is that um, for the vast majority of the universe, we don't know what it's made of. Mm. There's there's something called dark energy. It's uh, like 75% of the energy budget of the universe is this stuff. And we've got no idea. Well, we've got a rough idea what it might be, but we, we haven't sort of been able to play with it in a bottle. Um, and then of the rest, there's another um, sort of 20%, which is dark matter. So there, there we have lots of ideas, but we don't know which idea is correct. And then the remaining, you know, like 5% of the um, energy in the universe is in kind of more ordinary matter um, and that we're used to and that we know about. So there's uh, an immense amount we don't know, which, of course, is, uh, is a good opportunity for a theoretical physicist with a few ideas. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Lots Always be optimistic. Lots to discover there still. And that's right. Yeah. And a related question, because, um, well, you've, you've described a very small percentage of that actually to do with the matter that we, we know and experience every day, where, whereas the large majority is, is kind of the great unknown. But... Uh, in terms of thinking about the the matter and the forces that we're aware of, lots of the mathematics and the theoretical side has has said to in order to resolve all that, you need multiple dimensions, way more than three, in fact. So wondering uh, alongside the question of uh, what's the current thinking about what the universe is made of, how many dimensions are we existing in? Well, we know we've got four. So for, for sure, that, you know, there is three, three space and one time that we know yeah. about. And, uh, you know, Einstein told us you can't separate those two things. They're, they're part of this. They're really part of the same thing. But, um, okay. So you're referring, I think, to theories of extra dimensions and string theory in particular, um, which are very interesting mathematical 
um, ideas about how the universe may work. And uh, in, in, indeed, they're current and they're making lots of mathematical discoveries. They seem very difficult to test experimentally, mm. which is why some people think that they're not science, because you can't do experimental tests probably within our lifetime. Just it's uh, it would be too difficult. So, um, however, for for a kind of corner of these theories, you can test them and you can look for the kind of echoes of the extra dimensions in the collisions at CERN. Um, and that's one of the things I've been involved in. You know, how do you sift the data to see if you've you've seen these echoes of the extra dimensions? Um, of course, we're not aware of them. So either they've got to be curled up on themselves, um, incredibly tiny, so we can't see them, <laughs> or... <laughs> incredibly <Literally>. tiny <laughs> just incredibly a little small tiny. That, that's a technical technical <laughs> yeah. definition how small. so actually uh, or it could be that um ordinary uh particles of which we're made mm. are stuck on an island in these extra dimensions and it's only gravity that feels that that you know is the sea of gravity that get, gets away from the island um, and that's another possibility. And if that one is uh, correct, if that idea is correct, they could be uh, up to about 0.1 millimeters um, in size, uh, but still wrapped up on themselves in some way. That's fairly large. Yeah, no, it's surprisingly large. And it's because the reason it's... Uh, <laughs> Not so little. It's, it's like, why can't we see yeah, them? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Science so the reason... Yeah, that's right. So the reason uh, it's quite large is because gravity is actually, paradoxically, it's a really weak force. It's the only one that we're um, aware of every day. You know, when you when I put a glass on the table and it falls off, it's a pain, right? Gravity is telling me it's there. Um, but actually, the reason that we feel it is because we've got the Earth right next to us, which is massive. And uh, But if you just take a small bit of matter, the gravity gravity from it is tiny and that's why trying to measure at these very small distance scales um some deviation in the gravitational force law due to extra dimensions it's not it's not that sensitive that is completely and utterly fascinating and i didn't mean it to sound so deadpan <laughs> i'm just absorbing <laughs> it i'm absorbing it um and i was wondering uh ben from that because you mentioned that you're excited and looking out for new exotic particles. Are there any particularly exotic particles um, that have excited you recently or at the moment? At the moment, uh, I'm interested in uh, Z primes. <laughs> so Z primes are uh, a new force, a particle which carries a force. But uh, I think, I mean, I and my collaborators think there may be um, signals of it sort of hidden in the data that uh, are just... Uh, coming out if you look at the data in the right way mm. um, and they might it might tell us it might help unlock uh, a mystery um, we think and the mystery is <clears throat> why do particles have a they have a funny pattern of masses yeah um, uh, there, there's there's a factor of a million between the top quark mass and the mass of the electron those are two fundamental matter particles and uh, you know we'd like and the in between, in the factors of 10, the, the masses are filled up. So um, we think that if you build a proper theory of um, Z primes, you can both explain the data um, that I'm talking about at CERN, but also maybe start to answer some of these mysteries. Mm. Um, so we, I'm trying to tie things up with, yeah, it's called the fermion mass problem. The fermion um, mass problem. 
Yeah. yeah. So uh, electrons and top quarks are both examples of fermions, and uh, they have a, they have a problem with their mass. <laughs> they need to go on a diet. <laughs> <laughs> and with with these um, with these particles, are they? Would you describe them as are they missing per se, or is it a, a sort of mathematical theoretical framework that you've developed that solves other problems, but then? creates these spaces where where you need to have these particles basically in order to to achieve some sort of understanding a uh, framework of of particle physics or or larger problems so there's uh, well the current way i'm working is to um look at the data first okay um and uh try to see if there's anything that disagrees with current knowledge mm. given the particles and forces we know about okay and we think there are there are some signals that when you pull them together it looks like it's beginning to create a coherent picture although there's argument about that it's always you know a bit messy at the at the cutting edge um but then so then uh, we thought well what could what could you do in order to explain this and you bung a particle into the model what that really means is you use the mathematical framework that's underlying all of this which is called quantum field theory so it's a it's a it's even more fundamental than quantum mechanics it's a quantum theory so um it tells you about probabilities of things happening it's a thing that makes spaceships fly right yeah exactly <laughs> cool. yeah, exactly that that's the thing that, um, ma- yeah, exactly. So quantum mechanics makes your CD player work. If you, uh, sorry, CD your, player? um, yeah, <laughs> no one knows what that is now. Makes your mobile phone work. <laughs> so, uh, solid state electronics use a lot of quantum mechanics. Quantum field theory is, um, what happens if you, uh, throw, speed your phone up to close to the speed of light and smash it into another phone and, oh. uh, and create lots of particles. So essentially that's what's happening at CERN. You're um, creating particles through quantum interactions um, and that's what it's doing. So um, yeah, we're describing with a quantum field theory, a new kind of uh, particle, which are kind of ripples in this, in this field. That's fascinating. And it kind of leads into something else that I wanted to ask you about. Because I guess some of our listeners won't know what CERN is, and uh, maybe it's worthwhile just saying that it's um, a centre that straddles Switzerland and France, and it's dedicated to nuclear particle physics. Um, but maybe you could tell us a bit more about about CERN, about the Large Hadron Collider, what's going on there, what have you been doing with it? Right, so CERN was... Um, conceived in uh, the post-war, Second World War era. Um, the European countries wanted a common scientific goal to help provide political stability where they could all join together and uh, do something to, you know, achieve something together. And so CERN was set up in order to do this. Um, and it's so it's been going, you know, uh, going. since then, <laughs> since 1954, long time. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, currently, they, the big experiment they have there is this Large Hadron Collider, which you may have heard of. So 100 meters below the surface of the Earth, there's a, um, a tunnel. It's, uh, it's 27 kilometers long, so it's about the size of the Circle Line in London. Oh, that's a fun fact. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah, no, it's about 18 miles, about the same as the Circle Line. I'm going to share that one and, at dinner um, parties. Yep, <laughs> it's a good one. So it's got uh, two beams of particles, protons actually, going in opposite directions. 
And uh, just like in Ghostbusters, at various points, uh, they cross the streams of the of these beams. <laughs> so many, so many brilliant the- metaphors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Where they cross the streams, um, uh, sometimes the protons hit each other. And you, they've, they've got incredibly large energy. Um, for, for, this isn't going to mean much, but 14 billion, uh, 14 tera electron volts. So 14,000, no, 14 billion electron volts. And um, so when you, you can turn that energy into mass, into new particles, which are heavier than ones that you haven't seen before, just by using Einstein's equation, it equals mc squared, tells you can do that. Um, and so then these, you look for the signals of these new particles by building a, what's essentially a three-dimensional digital camera mm. around the crossing point. So you have these like three or four, there are actually four uh, around the ring, um, places where they cross the beams and they try and work out, you know, what's been going on. So you see these thousand fiery sparks come out of the collision and you try and do some detective work and work up, work, work back and try and work out what was happening exactly at the moment of, uh, of impact and see if there were new particles or forces or, you know, and how they, exactly how they behave. Mm. Mm. Many people, I think, will have seen um, on, on the internet or magazines pictures of, you know, the, the huge, fantastic caverns where, the, where the, the protons are being sped along. Um, at high speed, pictures of the infrastructure, which looks, of course, amazingly impressive, because it is. And and I, but I wonder what's the what's the sort of uh, daily daily experimental regime look like? Because obviously you're not in the ring; you're sort of in 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 labs. Do, can they run multiple experiments? Is it running hundreds of experiments a day? Is it is it one or two? Because I suppose all of that data has to be captured and that's what takes the time is the capturing, the saving, and then the distribution and, and the analysis of all the data. You're right. It's an incredible uh, feat of engineering. So what happens is um, when the when the Large Hadron Collider is switched on, no one's allowed down there because the, there's too much radiation. So it dies off quickly once you switch it off again. Um, but... Um, and once it's on, uh, you try and run it for as long as you can. So you fill it with protons, um, and then gradually the beams lose their protons. But you, you'll run for as long as you can. You, if you could, you'd run 24 hours around the clock. Mm. So people are doing night shifts, looking after their bits of equipment. And there are these four detectors around. And so you'll have staff on the top that are kind of remotely uh, monitoring and changing things in their uh, experiments all via computer links and stuff. Um, and then when the, when the beam uh, quality gets too low, after, say, 12 hours, sometimes 24 hours, they say, right, uh, dump the beam and we'll start again. So they, they skim the beam off into a massive block of concrete and it makes a bang because <laughs> it's got so much energy into it in it um, and then they they start spinning them up and uh, get going again and the thing is you're looking for very rare events yeah. so quantum the quantum theory tells you that you know you can only create a higgs boson for example uh, one out of every uh, 100 billion collisions so you need to do a lot of them to <laughs> even have a chance of producing a higgs boson so you're reading all of this data out as well you want to make sure that none of the um, none of your detectors broken, um, mm. and that the the data is you know is 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 clean. It's um, making sense, uh, but also there's far too much of the data. So you have to 
have some filters because you can't record it all. So you filter out the vast majority of it uh, that you're not really interested in. Um, so there's a, there's a massive production. There are like 14,000 people on site at CERN at any time during the day. Wow. There, there will be less at night, but there's still quite a few. Um, it's a really big operation and it runs, runs for months on end and it tends to have shutdowns, um, in winter when the, uh, electricity can be more expensive. It's shut down now actually for a couple of years while they upgrade, um, the whole thing. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, I mean, CERN is a small town, a scientific town in its own right. It's, you know, it's got its own fire service and, uh, <laughs> you know, medical centers and all sorts of things, um, so that, you know, it can, it can work properly. Oh, anthropology. Indeed. Yeah. That's... <laughs> um, and it's, we've been talking a lot about, you said a great, an amazing production. You talked about engineering. I think it'd be interesting to hear a bit about how the role of a theoretical physicist hangs and lives alongside and in collaboration with that of an experimental physicist, right? Because effectively, there are two very distinct things, from what I understand, and you know, you're coming up with ideas of how to find X or Y, and some of them will manifest themselves in experiments and others won't. And yeah, just hearing a bit about maybe your personal process and then how that manifests itself uh, wider a field, maybe in a more practical way. Sure. So, so theorists are um, very variable creatures. And so <laughs> some of us are, are quite close to um, the experiment, and that's where I live. And some people like the people who are worrying about the extra dimensions in string theory and all the maths, they're very far away from it. And they're, they're doing very interesting uh, mathematics and actually making math mathematical discoveries that the pure mathematicians are interested in. But they're not not necessarily interested in data. But but I am um, because I'm interested in any ideas that I have being tested. Um, so it's uh, the real the real answer is it's immensely exciting. I mean. CERN was a, a life ambition of mine. I wanted to work there um, and I felt so lucky to, I, I worked there for two years and had a great, uh, an amazing time there. And of course now I've got this association with it and I keep going back. But when um, there's some interesting data uh, that comes out with a little blip in it that no one understands and you think you, you have an idea for it and you think you might be onto it, it's incredibly exciting. Um, and you get your, that's when you start working, you know, the 20, 20 hour. Yeah, you're like, uh, I can't you stop. <laughs> yeah, you just get really into it. That's right. Um, and so that's that's a lot of fun. You tend to learn a lot at those times as well. Um, and uh, yeah, so so then, okay, so you find this blip, you have a proposal for what it might be due to, um, and then you've got to say, is that is that reasonable? Does mm. any other data from any any other experiments rule it out? And then you start saying, well, what implications? Does it have? Can we explain any mysteries? Is there a larger framework where this pops out of it, which and the larger framework might explain some mysteries? Um, and then, so there is some more theoretical investigation and tying up different strands um, of science together. Um, and it's it's uh, fascinating and it's a lot of fun, frankly. Um, yeah, but it's it's quite. For a long time, I worked on this theory um, called supersymmetry which was more of a, an overarching, uh, what we call a top-down idea. So 
you start with a theory that's beautiful in some way. Um, it maybe explains one or two mysteries, and then it has all of these experimental consequences and you go off and look for them and what happened was they haven't been found (laughs) unfortunately so you have to accept if you in my line of work you have to accept this as a possibility um and indeed you know i spent 20 years on supersymmetry and so far there's been no sign of uh the supersymmetric particles which is a great shame um but never mind (laughs) we're still having a lot of fun Mm, because supersymmetry was a i mean it's a theory that's decades old right it was it was actually a huge global project with so many people invested in in trying to to make this thing work because it solved so many problems it it was invented in its initial form in the 70s um and it it really okay we what we call weak scale supersymmetry solved one big problem which no one we still don't really understand the answer to this problem uh, if supersymmetry is not the correct theory and that's why is the Higgs boson so light? Mm. So if you if you do back of the envelope calculations, you find it should be like billions upon billions of times heavier. Uh, but supersymmetry explains how it can be light. Okay, so it's got this big, this massive, great big success. Um, but it made all these predictions, and uh, so far, um, you, you wouldn't really believe it until you've seen some of its particles and tested them in an experiment, and you kind of. We were expecting the Large Hadron Collider, it ought to have seen it by now. So if if it's correct, it's late to the party. <laughs> Let's put it like that. It's being a bit too fashionable. Yeah, that's <laughs> like, right. Like, too fashionable. No late. thanks. Yeah. yeah, that's right. But it, it kind of begs the question, Ben, because you're sort of geared on the experimental side of things, not not just the pure maths or the pure, pure theory. Um. In relation to looking for these things, I mean, if if CERN was a kind of post-war project, you know, the speed of technology and technological development um, and the size and scales of machines, how limited are you by technology? Because although CERN is absolutely immense and huge by design, the kinds of things you're looking for perhaps need a machine that's 10 or 100 or 1,000 or many more solar systems uh, times the size uh, of of certain to be able to really find these particles or unpick certain questions. That's a very good point. I mean, we're completely limited by the technology in terms of experimental verification, um, we, but not in terms of uh, theoretical musings, um, for instance. But the problem is, you, you might have some nice ideas, but you really want to test whether they're right or not <laughs> before you say you, you'll know you know they might be a great it might might sound like a great idea but you're never sure whether totally sure whether it's correct so um yeah you're right the i mean paradoxically the bigger the machine is the tinier particle or the heavier particle you can find mm. um and so there is a there is a hard upper limit uh, at the large hadron collider for directly producing uh, a new particle um, and it's given by this e equals mc squared. And so you'd need one, uh, yeah, five times bigger to maybe to get uh, a particle that's five times heavier. So there is this proposal for a new machine, which is would wow. be 100 kilometers wrong, long around uh, CERN. And that's in order to boost the energy by a factor of seven and maybe find uh, particles that were he- just heavier than you could see at the Large Hadron Collider by up to a factor of seven or so. Um, That's a lot of circles. And yeah, 
it, it's five circle lights or so. Yeah, that's right. It would go all the way behind the Celeb yeah. in uh, wow. around Geneva. Um, yeah, so, yeah. That's incredible. And not to not to just leave the conversation there, but slightly pivot. I mean, I can't help but notice. I mean, you've brought up the word hope. You've also talked about going through data. I mean, that's very methodical. There's a life sounds like a lot of sifting, but um, you're also a very creative person. <laughs> um, and I, I think that it'd be really, really wonderful just to flesh that out a little bit and about that, that you know, the creativity in science, creativity in what you do, but also the creativity in you as a, as a human, as a person and um, those various relationships and associations you know jen so so my mum was um uh an art uh, an artist she did fine art at uh, college and my oh. dad was a math teacher and uh so i've always i felt like i kind of um suppressed the art side of things when i was a, a teen but it was always there like and needed to be fulfilled so more recently i've sort of uh had the opportunity to indulge that a bit more and it's uh, it's been fantastic yeah so I mean, uh, I am into life drawing um, and, uh, yeah, the science ideas have kind of bled into that a little um, as well because I, I, I went to life drawing classes in um, Christ College in Cambridge directly after work on a Wednesday. So I'd be thinking about quantum physics and then go directly to the <laughs> class. Um, so it was purely, it was completely natural to think about it in terms of, uh, think about life drawing in terms of that as well. And, you know, there were all these things I ended up doing, like layering the images on top of each other and thinking about, um, superposition in quantum mechanics, um, which is, uh, you know, complete, incomplete analogy. Many of those things, um, kind of resonated, uh, with me. So that was, that's been fun and it, um, culminated in a, um, in a, um, a little exhibition um, in Berghaus in Hampstead uh, last year when things got out of hand. <laughs> um, and that was great. Um, but also uh, I got involved with Guerrilla Science, who are a um, science and art outreach uh, group uh, in London. And they were doing this intergalactic travel bureau. I don't know if you no, have heard of this. I'm offended. I wasn't invited. I want to come to the intergalactic travel bureau. <laughs> Can we still can we still travel? Can Is that still, still allowed? <laughs> yeah, that's right. So they they started off in uh, music festivals, and they'd have a tent which was done out like a travel agent. And the idea is you go in, and they had paid actors who had some uh, scripts to work from, and they'd say, uh, "What kind of holiday would you like?" You know. So if you say, um, "I don't know, I, I want to go," oh, I like skiing. They'd say, "Oh, go and ski the frozen slopes of Pluto." And then they give you all this spiel about how great Pluto was, which was correct. I mean, it was all scientifically correct. And they'd say, right, that's only going to cost you uh, $8 billion to get there. And it's going to take, you know, three months or whatever. <laughs> Strap in. Um, <laughs> that's right. And then at the end, you got um, a postcard from the planet uh, that they chose for you, which you could send to your granny uh, or whoever. And um, that was great. I love it. That was a, that was a lot of fun. But it turned into a stage show uh, in the end, which was put on um in london for a few nights it was, it was jointly funded by the space agency so i was a consultant on that and at some point i found myself um helping uh, a classically trained dancer and a contemporary clown to 
um, I was choreographing them to uh, do a dance into a black hole, <laughs> basically. So they had to dance, you know, time slowing down and one of them being stretched out towards the black hole and so on. The so, performance uh, never ended, did it? It just kept going. Infinitely. That's right. They're still there. <laughs> They're still there. <laughs> just forever, just circling the singularity. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, fantastic to hear the the combination of, of you know, science and art. And um, I, I always love that, you know, creativity folds back into science, uh, not only in, in the ways that you have to sort of push yourself to problem solve and to come up with ideas of um, how to solve big questions, but also in the, in the elegance of things. Like most often we, you know, we look to nature for, for the combination of, 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 of science and aesthetics or art, but also things like you were mentioning supersymmetry. And one of the, the most appealing thing is that it is that resolves things in a, in a really aesthetically pleasing way. And I wonder if you could speak about how sort of creativity might, might fall back into the, into the day job as well. Into the day job. Yeah, sure. So, um, well, I mean, one of the, so it's not just the fact that supersymmetry solved this problem that it was appealing. It, it's beautiful. It's it's beautiful in a way that isn't visual. Um, it's intellectually very pure, um, mathematically beautiful um, concept. And this is something that's um, it's influenced a lot of my uh, you know forebears. Is this idea of mathematical beauty? Um, and it's it's something that is difficult to um, appreciate, but it's got something to do with simplicity um, of the mathematics. If you've got some huge, complicated things that you have to um, put lots of bells and whistles everywhere, um, that isn't so appealing. But many of these ideas have actually, that have ended up being right um, have actually had, you know, uh, some simplicity, they, they might be very difficult to grasp conceptually, but they've had uh, uh, a beautiful simplicity running through them. Um, and that's something that's very appealing to me as well. And I used to work uh, more from that perspective. Actually, when I was studying supersymmetry, I was also motivated uh, by that. But the fact that uh, now I'm now I must admit, I'm getting my hands dirtier uh, with the data, if you like. Uh, and working in the opposite direction, but it's also it's very interesting. It's it's almost like um, if you're if you're a sculptor, do you work uh, completely from ideas, or are you working um, with your hands uh, first? Are you working with the physical medium out towards the ideas, or from the ideas, you know, in, into the physical manif manifestation of what you're doing? And clearly, those two directions interact with each other and I, I find that um in the day job as well i mean there is a conversation between the two sides of it i think yeah there's a mutual informing and leading that's really beautiful i wonder we have i know we have both so many more questions but um it's time for the final question which we ask all our wonderful guests and that's um what creative inspiration do you have uh, for our listeners ben Creative inspiration. Yeah. <laughs> I, um, let me think about that. I think next time you see the sun, not directly, obviously, next time you see the sun, think about the difference between what it looks like and the beauty of it 
and the fact that it's a constantly exploding thermonuclear bomb. <laughs> so that yeah. those two, that, yeah, the duality, that duality. Mm. Of, of what it looks like and what it actually is. That's really I incredible. Find that, I find that amazing. Yeah. Oh, beautiful and terrifying. That was a <laughs> yeah, indeed, <laughs> absolutely on the on the sublime side of things. <laughs> I don't know if you don't find that um, inspiring in some way, maybe terrifying. <laughs> I don't know what you will, what you will find inspiring. It's a great disjunction. I mean, I think like you were describing the tactility of a sculptor um, in the work that you do, but it's it's beyond microscopic. So nothing you could ever hold or see with with your own eyes, um, but still there it's still there in the making almost as if you could feel it and touch it it's great thank you exactly yeah i mean the yeah let me leave it there (laughs) um ben if um if we've got our guests and listeners who want to find out a little bit more about what you do they can google you (laughs) um sure yeah ben google ben alanak and you'll find my website and uh you know there's there's a video and a few bits and pieces on there that you can have a look at. Amazing. Can I help you find some particles? <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> if you find any, let me know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, everyone, um, thanks so much to Ben for being with us and thanks for listening and um, join us next time for more creative chat. Bye. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Thanks, guys. Bye.